today with Dr. K. I'm Dr. K. Wise Whitehead here again to have another conversation with you about some of the stories that matter. On this day in 1983, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday became a nationally recognized holiday. This was signed by then-President Ronald Reagan, and we have been dealing with the aftermath of Reaganomics for years. We can be very critical of Reagan's policies toward black people, but we can recognize when he did it right. This moment here where he said and he signed Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday into a nationally recognized holiday with Sister Coretta Scott King standing beside him. This was a moment when he got it right, a moment when the world began to recognize the achievements of Dr. King. Now, what is interesting, that on this day, as Ronald Reagan signed this bill, you had black and white Americans, Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, joining together in this act of unity. See, I get a little bit nervous with acts of unity because acts of unity aren't necessarily rooted in movements to bring people together. But, but let's just focus on on the look that day, when people came together as President Ronald Reagan signed this bill to establish this federal holiday in honor of Dr. King. Be very clear, folks. It is difficult to establish a federal holiday. This is not an easy undertaking to do. When you look to establish a federal holiday, you are essentially setting a day aside and you are also making the commitment to close the federal government. That it is a huge undertaking to set something up as a federal holiday that is then recognized and is designated by the federal government as a national holiday. When a federal holiday is observed, there things are closed. Federal government agencies are closed. The, the post office is closed. Sometimes states get in line and they begin to close because it took a long time, let's be very clear, for a lot of states to recognize Dr. King's birthday as a national holiday. They closed non-essential federal government offices, stock market trading is usually suspended, and every federal government employee is paid for the day. Now, before Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, there were 11 federal holidays. We know now there are 12 because Juneteenth is now a federally recognized holiday. I want you to understand as we're talking about this, the extraordinary significance of Dr. King's birthday becoming a holiday. In this country, we have only a few people who have a day named after them. George Washington's birthday is a federal holiday. Christopher Columbus Day, which we're working to rename as Indigenous Peoples Day, is recognized as a national holiday holiday. You have New Year's Day and Inauguration Day, Memorial Day, Independence Day, Labor Day, Veterans Day, Thanksgiving Day, and Christmas Day. And let me be clear, I said earlier 12, I'm sorry, it's 11th. The 11th one was the introduction of Juneteenth earlier this year as a federal holiday. There were originally only four holidays, New Year's Day, Independence Day, Thanksgiving Day, and Christmas Day. And then over time, they began to establish different days. When Ronald Reagan signed Dr. King's Day into law, and it was first observed three years later, 
although many states resisted, it was not celebrated in all 50 states until the year 2000. Think about that. It was signed in 1983. It was not until the year 2000 that it was celebrated in all 50 states. In fact, if you think about this, uh, who stood against it? Senators Jesse Helms of North Carolina, which shouldn't surprise you, and John McCain of Arizona, the maverick. John McCain, they was like, no, 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 let's get behind John McCain. John McCain opposed the creation of the federal holiday for the birthday of Dr. King when it was approved in the Senate, 78 to 22. Dr. King's holiday is, is controversial. Even though they, they sang, we shall overcome after he signed it, even though Ronald Reagan, there are a lot of things on, on record of Ronald Reagan's feelings about black folks. He paid tribute to Dr. King, saying his words and deeds had stirred our nation to the very depths of its soul. Coretta Scott King was there. Reverend, Jackson, Reverend Jesse Jackson was there. And do know that at the same time that they were signing King's day into law, Jesse Jackson was making a plan and had told people on that Thursday after the big signing, he was announcing his candidacy for the Democratic presidential nomination. We received word that Jesse Jackson fell when he was visiting an HBCU. We definitely extend our thoughts and prayers to him. That day, a lot of people felt it was exciting. It was historic. Uh, Coretta Scott King said Dr. King's legacy, his life, and his spirit lives within all of us. And even though he only lived for 39 years, the argument is that he changed America forever. Now, Mr. Reagan was asked whether Dr. King was a communist sympathizer, because that's what Senator Jesse Elm said. And Mr. Reagan said, look, we'll know in about 35 years, won't we? 35 years later, is what we're waiting for because under court order, records of the electronic surveillance of Dr. King conducted by the FBI will be made available 35 years from that moment, which would be the year 2027. That's when we will find out exactly what was happening. They argue that this is one of the high points and that if American history grows from two centuries to 20, people will still remember Dr. King's I have a dream speech. He said, let us not only recall Dr. King every year, but rededicate ourselves to the commandments he believed in and sought to live every day. Thou shalt love thy God with all thy heart, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. These are great words, wonderful words, if you think about it. How wonderful it was for brethren and sistren to come and dwell together in unity that I would argue is based a bit on a lie. And that's what I want to get into today. The lies that have been taught to us about American history. Because what they essentially have done, they have whitewashed Dr. King. They have set it up in such a way that we only focus on I have a dream. We only focus on brotherhood and sisterhood. We only focus on that rather than focusing on what Dr. King really began to stand for moving beyond the I have a dream speech in 1963 at the March on Washington. When Dr. King was assassinated in 1968, his disapproval rating, his public disapproval rating was at 75%. It had risen by 25% since 1963. Dr. King made a dramatic shift in his policies and his public stand. In fact, he said that he was demanding a reconstruction of the entire society and a revolution of values. He said America needs to be dismantled if we really want to get to the heart of what was happening. 
Dr. King, when he was assassinated in this country, the Dr. King that we lift up, the Dr. King who won, who's only the second black man to win the Nobel Laureate for Peace, that Dr. King was hated in both the black and the white community. Dr. King began to use his stand, use his platform, use his bully pulpit for good. He said it's drawing attention to what was going on. A day after returning home from receiving the Nobel Laureate for Peace, he joined the picket line at Atlanta's Scripto Pen Factory, where some 700 workers were striking for better wages for less skilled employees. Dr. King called for a nationwide boycott of Scripto products. And at that point, for a lot of people, particularly blue-collar white workers, that was a huge stand for them because Dr. King was moving, well, as we begin to see, moving beyond the box they wanted to put him in to only focus on race. And instead, he began to look at this class issue. Dr. King moved beyond the bloody battles against blatantly illegal states and local racial practices in places like Birmingham and Selma. He did not rest with the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, all started under Kennedy and finished under Johnson. He instead decided to pursue a more expansive, a more aggressive, and to many white Americans, an unsettling socioeconomic and political agenda. Dr. King said, we have to begin to talk about class. Listen to this. When Dr. King sat down for an interview with Playboy magazine, and it was, I'm saying, Playboy used to have really good articles, and I have no idea what's in it, but I remember there would always be talk about all the good articles in Playboy magazine. There was one with Alex Haley interviewing Dr. King. Alex Haley from Roots, Alex Haley who ghost wrote, you know, Malcolm X's autobiography. He sat down with Dr. King. Listen to this, folks. Dr. King endorsed a massive federal aid program for black people, which is reparations. He called for $50 billion to be put toward the black community to help to deal with the fallout from school dropouts, family breakups, crime rates, illegitimacy, swollen relief roles, rioting, and other social ills. Dr. King was calling for reparations way back when he sat down in this interview with Alex Haley. And so today, in our conversation, we have a number of pastors who are going to join us to just talk about what this experience was like for them, what they remember about this time when Dr. King's holiday was signed into law. Uh, I'm joined now by Reverend Dr. Van Gaten. Dre, can you fix the audio, please? There's some backlash here. Um, I'm joined by Reverend Dr. Van Gaten uh, calling in from Florida. He is associated here in Baltimore City with the Carson Institute. He's a senior research fellow. He has over 40 years of experience as both a pastor and as a teacher of theology. Dr. Van Gaten, how are you? I am fine, Dr. K. It's so good to be with you today. It's good to have you on. I'd like you to talk uh, and help us frame first the importance of Dr. King's birthday, in your opinion, the importance of it becoming a national holiday. What exactly did this mean at that time, and what does it mean today? Well, I'll tell you, I, I think um, it is proper, it is right, that in this nation that has been so divided, that's been so disheveled in many ways, that Dr. King's holiday, because he fought for brotherly love, for unity, uh, and for the liberation of black folks, and I think he should be honored if any other human being in America has got a national holiday, King has to be at the top of the list. 
Okay, but when Dr. King was assassinated, yeah. his disapproval rating was at 75%. He was not loved. He was not supported, even within the black community. Can you talk yeah. about why Dr. King, when well, I mean, the black community loves him so much today, right? Why yeah. he was not a beloved figure by the time 1968 hit? Well, you know, I think, uh, Dr. K, I think of it this way. Uh, prophets were usually without honor in their own town amongst their own people. And when you speak to the issues that he was speaking to, it caused discomfort. Uh, the aftermath of his being in a city, in a town, uh, caused uh, great consternation for many people. And they, their everyday life was disturbed, and the white backlash that came against them, they, they understood that by just him being there. Secondly, I believe Dr. King was a man who was ahead of his times. He was already, I believe he was in transition just as he was assassinated, that he was going through some changes, just like Malcolm X was, going through some changes in their own uh, lives. They were morphing into being uh, uh, something else other than what they were at that time. And I believe that uh, everybody at the time of great leaders is not standing. I mean, history records that most people, most great leaders are loved afterwards, after their lifetime, after they have made the impact and left from this world. And I think that's true. Now, that's not the way I feel about him, and that's what I'm really speaking today, that, you know, the sad thing was, the first time I ever heard King's voice, I was in high school, and I thought, who is this man? And when he spoke, it sent chills through me, Literally, like no other speaker had. But now that I've, uh, now that I am past sixty years old, I won't go any further than that. Um, I look at his life, how he was so young, and how he came to the forefront in this great nation of hostility. He went to the forefront at twenty-four years old, twenty-six years old. This man was doing things that I could not have done at that same age, and so. In, in hindsight, I do have great respect for him, even though he had his flaws, even though he was not perfect. But at the same time, I honor him because he did far more than I ever have done, and I'm not sure that I ever could have. So I think this man, you know, and in, in the Bible, and I'm going to bring this up, Dr. K, in the Bible, there is only one true hero. That is the Lord Jesus himself. Because whether you're looking at uh, all the different prophets, if you look at all the great leaders, all the great judges of the Bible, even the disciples in the New Testament, you very clearly can see that they were all flawed. They had imperfections. And, and the whole message, and Martin Luther being a preacher as well, is that how God can use imperfect people, how God can use people who have flaws in their characters, because the main story uh, of the Bible, as well as this world, is the God who created this world and the God of the Bible. So my heart goes out to uh, the people who uh, disliked King. I understand some of their hostility. I understand some of their hatred for him. But at the same time, I understand why he's loved. Well, why he's loved today. Like, I, I think that, yeah, that part of, of the unpacking that needs to be done is taking a, a critical look at, at two factors that I would say yeah. are, are, are what helped to shape Dr. King today. One is the incredible work of Coretta Scott King. Like, that was her oh, yeah. mission and her undertaking. When she gathered up Dr. King's papers and gave them to Dr. Claiborne Carson, to keep his work alive, which essentially keeps him alive. But she worked on transforming Dr. King's legacy. So that, that's one part of it. But I do think the second part is the way in which history, through the eyes of the media, 
through the eyes of those who are empowered to tell the story, have shaped Dr. King's message, and they have narrowed his message as a result. He's been narrowed down to I Have a Dream, and nobody's talking about his 1968 speech remaining awake through the Great Revolution. They're only talking about having a dream of people holding hands and singing along rather than his demand for a $50 billion reparations package into the black community. Oh, and also, you know, bringing up the fact that he was against, he was against the Vietnam War yes. and other aspects. So there's, he is a multifaceted kind of person, and all the issues about him need to be talked about and and, you know, some things about Dr. King I totally disagree with to this day. But, uh, again, I weigh them against my own flaws, and I honor him because for my people, he literally laid down his life. But he could not have done that, I agree with you, without Coretta Scott standing at his side. Uh, you know, it's funny, Kay, when the Bible says it's not good that man should be alone, I'm going to make him a helper. Well, in the Hebrew language, the word helper is always referring to somebody superior helping somebody inferior. So the Holy Spirit helps us. Well, Coretta Scott helped Martin Luther King Jr. too, because if that woman had not been the kind of woman she was, and it's too bad that he gets all the ink because she has a story that should be told. She has done a great role in this nation, her strength, her love her brilliance, it all stood there for King and for she should be celebrated in this nation as well as what this great woman did for this man and what she did for this whole nation. And also what she did for oppressed people. I mean, Coretta Scott King, yeah. I mean, what one of the things that I think is interesting when I think about the Widows Club, which is what they call themselves, right? So the yeah. widow of Dr. King, Coretta Scott King, Malcolm X's widow, uh, Betty yes. Shabazz, thinking about yeah. uh, Merle Evers, the widow of uh, Megar Evers. And then they invited in, of course, um, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, you know, JFK's widow. And they called yeah. themselves the Widows Club. And oh, they my were, goodness. They were calling and they were connecting. I mean, you're talking from 1963 on all of them were impacted from, you know, Betty to Merle to J uh, Jacqueline to Coretta. Like they were all impacted in what it meant to stand beside powerful men to be the mother yeah. of their children and then to have their lives taken away at the end of an assassin's gun. So yeah. thinking about that and the framing around that, I think about the way each one of them managed to not be buried in the grave with their husbands. In other yeah. words, they managed to build a life and a legacy that stands separate from just being the wife of Dr. King, being the wife of Malcolm X, the wife of Megar Evers. Each one of them, and that's what we're going to get into when we come back, each one of them built a legacy in their own right. So who's in charge of legacy keeping? What does it mean to have Dr. King whitewashed? And what does it mean for us to reclaim him? So, Dr. Mm. Van Gaten, we're going to hold it here. When we come back, we'll have another pastor join us. And then the three of us are going to work through this together. Folks, stay with us and then be ready to chime in. What do you think about the whitewashing of history? Who's in charge of telling our story? We'll talk about that when we return. This is Kenya Dejanay, a junior multi-platform production major here at Morgan State University. And interning at WEAA is expanding my knowledge of the fast-paced entertainment industry through hands-on work experience. Donate at WEAA.org and call in at 410-319-8888. Welcome back to Today with Dr. K. I'm Dr. K. Wise Whitehead. Folks, we're talking about the legacy of Dr. King. We began this conversation yesterday, actually, and we were talking about what does it mean to, to go from being someone whose disapproval rating is at 75 percent to now being completely loved. What, what gets lost in the process in terms of your legacy and the ways in which people remember you and talk about you. 
1963, Dr. King, uh, this is in April 63, he was arrested in Birmingham, Alabama. Now, one of the things about Dr. King is that he rarely took time to defend himself against his opponents. He would have been doing that all the time. But on this particular occasion, while he was sitting in jail, eight prominent Alabama clergymen, all white, published an open letter, and they had done it in January. And the letter called on Dr. King to allow the battle for integration to continue in the courts. And they warned that Dr. King's nonviolent resistance would have the effect of inciting civil disturbances. He responded to them with the letter from a Birmingham jail. People talk about how he wrote the letter on the edges of newspapers with a broken and borrowed pencil and would give slips of paper to the reverends who would come visit him, including Reverend Y.T. Walker, to get this letter out. I have Reverend Dr. Van Gaten on with me to help me to break down Dr. King's legacy and who's in charge of telling our story. So, so Reverend uh, Gaten, in looking at this letter from a Birmingham jail, Pieces of it have been pulled out, right? Everyone knows that injustice every anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, right? Everybody yeah. knows that. Um, I think what people don't look at when they really begin to think about Dr. King, I don't think they go deep into his speeches. I think they grab those little slogans— Nonviolence, injustice is here, we shall overcome. And I think they run with the slogans and not with everything else he was trying to say around the slogans. I, I totally agree. I think we're a very uh, ir- illiterate kind of society, and we're used to quips and those short uh, axioms, and uh, we do, we've not, we do, don't engage critical thinking to sit down and really look at the writings or the text and, and be able to identify with it and, and feel it, the empathy to feel it. Uh, because I really feel that Dr. King from Birmingham jail, uh, we were just telling, trying to say, this is not the time, you know, they were trying to say to him, the eight white preachers, this is not the time. He says, well, then what is the right time? And they were, they were moving from a evolutionary kind of uh, revolution, which takes long periods of time to accomplish anything. That's the narrative that they wanted to put out there. But King was responding where he wanted a an immediate revolution. A immediate. We need changes right now because we are the people who are being persecuted and drowned and and being neglected and Jim Crow and chased by dogs and, and being dehumanized and spoken of this way. We want changes right now. It's been long enough. It is time for a change. And so I think that we have to have uh, uh, critical thinking involved in this issue. By And I'm so glad for right now, uh, Dr. K, your voice uh, in, the, in the nation right now and so many others that I know and don't know, but I just feel that people that are qualified and competent and people who can love everybody, but at the yet time be accurate and critical in areas where it needs to be and learn how to delve into the text and into the writings and dig out the, the, the ex- exegete from the text, what is really being spoken, what is really being said. I think we're living in a time that uh, we want to control our own narrative as for our own people in this nation. All right. Well, let me bring in Reverend Dr. Michael Bell uh, out of Texas, um, also a pastor with the long eye of history on his side. Uh, Reverend Dr. Michael Bell, how are you, sir? Welcome back to the show. I'll tell you what, I am doing fantastic. Uh, Thank you so much. Glad to be here uh, with you and... uh, with, uh, sounds like, I understand Dr. Gaten is on, is that Dr. Gaten on? That's Dr. Gaten, yep, Reverend Dr. Gaten is with us. I have two, I have two reverends here, two pastors, um, <laughs> to help us to understand. So, Reverend Bell, let me come to you. We yes. were talking about letter from a Birmingham jail, and, and, and one of the, the lines in this letter, because we're, we're looking at 
the ways in which Dr. King has been whitewashed and narrowed down to we have a dream and I have a dream and you have a dream, rather than his demand that America itself dismantle this system of economic injustice. One of the lines that he wrote, Dr. Bell, he said, history is a long and tragic story of the fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Are we not saying the same thing today, Dr. Bell? Uh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, it seems as if there was a movie uh, some years ago. Uh, what was it called? Groundhog's Day. And, it's, and it was uh, <laughs> how the day was recurring over and over again. And it seems as if we're in this cycle, this cyclical, uh, uh, historical, uh, uh, I, I guess it seems as if we're locked into this uh, somehow. And uh, yes, what he said is still relevant today. It resonates today. And uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, the, the narrative, the narrative uh, that we are hearing uh, about uh, African Americans and others, uh, other people of color, uh, that narrative seems to be controlled uh, by uh, who Walter Wink uh, refers to as the powers that be. Let me ask you and follow up with that, Dr. Bell, with another statement in this letter where Dr. King talks about that who he is gravely disappointed with is the white moderate. In fact, he wrote, I have almost reached a regrettable conclusion that the Negro's greatest stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizens council or the KKK, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Mm. Uh, those words of Dr. King could have been uh, written just an hour ago, as a matter of fact. Mm. That's how, how contemporary they are. Uh, the, uh, as, a, as a person who has been president of a convention that was overwhelmingly uh, white, uh, what Dr. King said back then uh, in that letter to uh, Birmingham, uh, from Birmingham jail, rings true. It rings true today. Uh, it seems as though right now, especially here in Texas and other parts of the country, as a matter of fact, all over this country, we are we're having to go over, go up, up against uh, those uh, the so-called evangelicals, uh, the uh, what uh, I refer to as American folk religionists. And it seems as though even those that we think are liberal, this is my experience, those that that we think are liberal, uh, when they're disagreed with, it seems as though they t uh, they have a, a, a different way of, uh, of looking at you and relating to you. He said here, Reverend uh, Gayton, that he was also disappointed with the white church. He called it the church. We really was focusing on the white church saying he was looking for white ministers to say, look, follow this decree because integration is morally right and the Negro is your brother. He was arguing that white ministers were not willing to stand in the hellfire with black ministers and black folks to bring about the type of justice that this country needed to have. Have you seen that change over time? Well, I think we are still facing the same kind of historical context between the black and white church, that the white America, and I say this from personal experience, I have given oversight to thousands of white Christians and leaders, and it's just like the, there's a group called the Promise Keepers, and Coach McCartney, who is a a football coach, he led this, and, and back in the early 90s, I was pastoring a mega church, 98% white. And uh, these mega churches were uh, having meetings in stadiums, and they were inviting blacks to stand, and they would, you know, uh, be at your foot for a foot washing and saying, uh, please forgive us, and we want to wash your feet, and etc. But when it came to social justice issues, that's why Promise Keepers didn't work, because they wanted to pray around us in a stadium, but they didn't want to stand on the streets with us when the police were attacking us and abusing us. And so this whole—and then there's a theological problem here. The white church has been still silent 
towards the cry for justice of black folks. And they, ever since the inception of this nation, the Presbyterians and many others came to this nation, and they were understood that we are to only preach a spiritual gospel. And when you understand that, that those roots came out of the English Enlightenment, uh, they carried them here to the States, and so because they only focused in on uh, spiritual uh, and not the social, that dichotomy, that failure on their part to see justice as a spiritual issue has been part of the harm, and it, it, it gave them the liberty and the privilege of walking away from their oppressed brothers, and their silence is part of the sin of America, and we mm-hmm. now need to uh, shake them up and say, you know, listen, theologically, you're no longer correct. You need to understand that God is a God of justice, and He is justice, and He is righteous. Same, same Hebrew words, same Greek words, God is just, God is righteous. Same thing. And that there are so many scriptures, and this is where cultural blindness comes in to a people that are privileged, that when you've been walking in privilege, uh, you don't see what people are walking in when they're not privileged. I sat in a seminary, and I had a professor, a white professor, in a class with 25 MDiv students. They had master's degrees. He, he cited a verse from the Bible and asked each one of us to share. He left me for last. He asked 24 white Presbyterian leaders, pastors, what do they see in the text? And they all stated it, but when he came to me, he said, Van, what do you see? And I said, I see racism. And that professor said, you're the only one that sees it. And he says, this shows that there is such a thing as cultural blindness. And that was the reason that I wrote my dissertation was based on that day in seminary. But if America does not wake up to our situation, then we're going to, I think it was Derek Bell in Faces at the Bottom of the Well. He said he didn't believe America ever was going to get it right. He said, but it is still a noble struggle to be engaged on our part. It is still a noble struggle. All right, well, let me bring Reverend Bell uh, back into this. Reverend Bell, I want to have you kind of begin to respond to that, but also frame it through something that Dr. King wrote. There was a piece he did called A Testament of Hope. And this essay was actually published after he was assassinated. But but one of the lines he puts in there, Reverend Bell, he said, justice for black people will not flow into society merely from court decisions nor from fountains of political oratory. He was saying in order to have justice, we actually have to have radical change in the structure of our society. And 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 he 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 was and is absolutely right. Um, what we have, and I think we've said this uh, again and again. What we have is this: is that we have we're, we're faced we're facing uh, institutional, structural uh, racism uh, it, that permeates uh, even the asphalt that we drive on. Uh, it, it permeates every aspect of, uh, of American life, the judiciary, and and just across. Across the width and breadth of the of the political landscape, and and the bottom line is this is this is that unless that is the only change that is going to be lasting change because we're caught in this cycle, uh, seemingly the only change that's going to be lasting change is going to uh, have to be uh, unfortunately a disruptive change. There are those in in the black church who have written about uh, in, in the common race war. There are, there, are, there are several books. I know Dr. Gaston is aware of this. Uh, uh, there are several books that have been written by uh, uh, black church uh, church men and church women uh, uh, referencing the common race war because uh, it seems as though there is no that 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 that's what we're headed unless something changes and there's no indication as uh, uh, that that anything will change as. as Dr. Gaston uh, uh, pointed out, Dr. Gaston pointed out, is this is that it's so very important to recognize that for the for the white so-called white uh, evangelical church, the white church, the model is the priest. That's why they focus on uh, morality and and so forth. But the 
the model for the black church has been historically the prophet. So you have that, that the priest on one hand, that model, uh, where you can ignore what's going on socially. You can, can neglect uh, to address uh, social issues. I had a pastor uh, who, uh, here in Fort Worth who just walk, walked the line. We were protesting, and he just walked the line to ask questions. He did not hold a picket sign mm-hmm. or what have you, and he ended up having to go. Uh, they they got rid of him. As a matter of fact, he ended up in uh, in uh, North Carolina, Charlotte, and just because he walked with us, so he they, they're reflecting the kind of values right. of lack thereof of their congregants as well. So, and folks, so I want to open up the phone lines to you. Uh, 410-319-8888. We're talking about the legacy uh, that has been whitewashed around Dr. King's work. There is a legacy that's been carved that's separate from the work that he's doing that really is built on slogans, built on some of his phrases, but not really getting into Dr. King's demand for a $50 billion package. We call it reparations today. He's like, we have got to put this money into the black community in order to build the black community up and really save the black community. In so many ways, when Dr. King, when he was assassinated with his disapproval rating at 75 percent, it's because of what he stated and what he stood for after 1963. I'm going to go to Gene from Pikesville before I go back to Reverend Gaten and Reverend Bell. Gene, how are you? Oh, I'm, I'm fine, thank you, and uh, hello, reverends. Yeah, uh, you sort of jumped ahead to where I wanted to be. Um, where do we go from here? The SCLC speech, uh, 10th anniversary, uh, Operation Breadbasket. But prior to that, because I'm a Vietnam-era uh, person, served in Southeast Asia, it, it, the, the Vietnam Vietnamese people, and I think Muhammad Ali expressed it orig- sort of originally here in Malcolm X, but the Vietnam War, the Summer of Love. Are you guys familiar with the Summer of Love? Mm-hmm. Yes. When, when the uh, when the hippies yip, yippies or the white students left school, went to San Francisco, and uh, you know, and literally was a year demonstration of uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll and anti-war. And I was part of the anti-war movement. And so, but what I'm saying, what I'm suggesting is that Dr. King were, took the uh, the movement on the world stage, and you and used Vietnam as a uh, the the the, the uh, Vietnam speech in 1967. I forget the name of it, but when he came out against the war in Vietnam, that was the you know uh, the initiation of you know bringing this again to the world stage. And, and then that same year, uh, okay, the same year 1968 was the was the Tet Offensive, and, and that was a turning point and basically an end in the war in Vietnam. But Dr. King came out against the war. And then he, he Operation Breadbasket was uh, boycotting Chicago, uh, Cleveland, and Atlanta housing, but he never got to the Atlanta portion. And so he, he, he completely changed. Well, I'm not going to say he completely changed, but he changed, and, and, and now it was a worldwide movement. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't want to say that that's what you know, caused his death, but the Vietnam War... It's kind of overlooked, and again, Operation Breadbasket is never or hardly talked about except um, you know, myself and a few other people. So I was so wondering how you guys feel about that. I appreciate that. Let, let me go to, um, to Reverend Bell to answer that. So when he's talking about Dr. King moving into taking a public stand against the Vietnam War, which, as many said after he was assassinated, was a public stand against the American government. The speech that Gene is referencing was a speech called Where Do We Go From Here, which was given in 1967. It was his last and what some would argue his most radical Southern Christian Leadership Conference presidential address, where he really took America to task over the war and over its treatment of black folks both on a local level and on a national level. Reverend Bell, can you talk a little bit about how Dr. King, in making that step in terms of speaking out against the Vietnam War, that for a lot of people they saw that as a moment when America's, the tide began to turn against him? Back in in, in, uh, April of 67, Dr. King uh, spoke at the Riverside Church 
and uh, talked about uh, uh, Beyond Vietnam. That was the title, as the brother referring to, I'm sure, as well, uh, Time to Break Silence. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that, uh, Dr. King uh, stated his uh, anti-war perspective. And and you remember, he said, you remember, of course, you know, Dr. K, he said um, that my conscience leaves me no other choice. Right. And when he condemned the, the Vietnamese War, and uh, but he but he had done he had done so uh, what back in 1965 when he was talking about how our country can't protect the rights of, of African Americans or uh, the Negro uh, in in Selma, Alabama, but we can send troops to uh, Vietnam. And uh, so so uh, Dr. King was 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 talking about really the hypocrisy. And, uh, uh, of of the uh, American government, but also we see that same hypocrisy uh, in uh, the uh, white church. I'm just going to say the white church, the evangelical church. We see that same hypocrisy uh, exhibited every day. Now, now Reverend, Van, Reverend Van Gaten, I want to come to you because the speech that Reverend Bell mentioned, the time to break silence, which is the one that was done exactly one year before he was assassinated. The interesting thing about that speech, that's not the first time that he opposed the Vietnam War. It was the no. first time that he did two things. He linked it to the civil rights movement and he directly attacked the Johnson administration's war policy. Like he made a public stand against LBJ President Johnson, yes, and this is the first time he did that, Reverend Gaten. Yes, and I think that as far as the, that was the dividing line right there, where Johnson was through with him in many ways. And I'd also like to add, when we talk about uh, white silence, in historically, I think also if we move past Johnson right up to Nixon, we find that Billy Graham in the middle of all this. I think America could have had a major difference in, in many ways if Billy Graham had been willing to march with Dr. Martin Luther King. Mm. But he was willing to be in the White House with Nixon, who did what he was doing, and he would not march with Dr. King, even though he allowed him to come to one of his rallies and give, give a prayer, you know, a token idea. But he would not march with him. And my point being is that the white church has never stood with the black church. Now, we claim the same God, the same Holy Spirit, the same book, but one thing the white church and white America has never done is learn from the black church, uh, the prophetic nature of the black church, in learning how to speak truth to power. And then back to Dr. King, he also he challenged America that we needed to get back to the roots of racism. And that root of racism goes all the way back to the English Enlightenment under Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, and Adam Smith. They believed in that slave-master mentality, and that just infiltrated and bled into the Americans. They brought it over across the waters and into it. Even our Constitution was really written for an elite aristocratic white man and not for the average folks. It was written to protect the rich and the aristocrats and not for a common America. And Dr. King got into all of that, and that struck. When you touch the power base of a nation or a business or whatever, uh, you are in trouble for sure. And that's why they took his life, because Dr. King was touching the pair of the power base of this very nation, which was white supremacy. Let me go to another phone call. We have Wesley on from Reisterstown. Wesley, how are you? You on with Reverend Gaten? Yes, feel free to cut me off at any time. These these are my views. It's not the views of anybody but me. Not Morgan State, not the state of Maryland, not nobody else. (laughs) Okay, so feel free to cut me off. Billy Graham was a bad person. Franklin Graham is a bad person. Now, now I got that off my chest. Now, the white church is a political entity. It's not a spiritual entity. So the white church isn't hypocritical. And if you're trying to reason with the white church, if you're trying to get help from them, uh, I think you'd be better off doing something else because they are a political entity. And when the uh, that religion doesn't fulfill its political um, aims, they'll get another religion. So bye-bye. 
Thank you so much. So I, I want to go back, um, Reverend Bell, to the, the speech that we're kind of looking at, um, where, where Dr. King, when he really made that stand, this is the one where people are like, okay, they knew, or they say today, Reverend Bell, that they knew that Dr. King was on, was on a short line at this point. When you go against the American government with the type of platform that he had, he said, America, the richest, the most powerful nation in the world, World can well lead the way in this revolution of values. He said, I cannot speak out against the violence that's being done by my own brothers in their community without first pointing a finger at the greatest purveyor of violence on the planet, and that is my own government. Yes. And, and what Dr. King was doing is that... Uh, he was he was uh, just speaking truth to power as we know, and that he was uh, that unveiling uh, that 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 publicly uh, going against uh, the powers that be speaking out speaking the truth. Uh, that 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 sealed, as a matter of fact, uh, that sealed uh, so to speak his fate. As far as I, I believe, at that time, it, 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 as we look back. At that time, uh, it, it, it was just, it, that it was decided that King Dr. King was not long was wasn't going to be here long. And so the bottom line is this: is that uh, when we talk about what uh, 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 Dr. Uh, uh, Washington uh, was it that I think it was yes Joseph Washington Jr. called uh, white folk religion and uh, 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 the gentleman referenced Billy Graham and not only Billy Graham. But others long before Billy Graham, right. uh, who who really uh, white, the, the white folk religion has been uh, detrimental uh, to uh, our future, our progress, our, any any uh, forward movement on the part of African Americans, and they have used faith. They have literally the white church has used faith uh, and deployed faith to to just uh, keep. Uh, uh, African Americans uh, 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 keep us where we are as far as uh, continually fighting and uh, trying to get uh, uh, make this progress, uh, uh, make a step forward, and at the same time, uh, two steps forward, three steps backwards. And so they have they have literally deployed faith, used faith to make that happen. So, folks, we're going to leave it here for just a moment. When we come back, we're going to have uh, Reverend Dr. Van Gaten on and Reverend Dr. Michael Bell on with us just a little bit longer. We have Lev holding on, and I want to hear from you because what I want to talk about when we return is I want to talk about Dr. King's last speech, I See the Promised Land, and whether or not the dream that we've been led to believe is a possibility has actually happened. We'll talk about that when we return. <laughs> 